So, this week on the podcast, Daniel and I sit down with Thomas Westbrook, aka Holy Kool-Aid, to talk about his journey from Christian to atheist, his YouTube channel and how that's grown and changed over the years, and where he's going today, along with the things that inspire him and encourage him to keep sharing the content he's currently producing, as well as putting on the sorts of forums and conversations that he's most passionate about. This is a really heartfelt and honest conversation where Daniel and me get to ask some really great questions of Thomas to get the best from him. He's such a exuberant personality and he's such a strong voice in my own deconstruction as I came out of Christianity. I remember going for a walk with a good friend once saying that I'm starting to question some of the conservative Christianity that I was raised in and believed and taught. And they said to me, hey, there are three YouTube channels and the number one they listed was Holy Kool-Aid. And uh, since then, I've been really inspired and encouraged by Thomas's honesty, uh, engaging with typical conversations and subjects and expressing them to people like myself, laymen, trying to engage with this space. So I hope you enjoy what you hear here. And if you watch on YouTube, I'd ask you to hit like, subscribe, and then the notification bell so you're reminded whenever we release a conversation. And I hope everybody enjoys this conversation with Holy Kool-Aid. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies. The aim of this podcast and YouTube channel is to have conversations that honestly reflect on faith, religion, and life. Once a week, every week, we aim to bring you a conversation that explores belief with a variety of guests from various parts of the world, delving into why some subscribe to a specific religion and or denomination, and why others have either never believed or decided to walk away from a framework of belief. The more we can understand about why someone holds or rejects a specific religious position, the more honest we can be with the positions we hold as we strive to believe as many true things as possible. This is why it's amazing to have you with us each and every week. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name is Daniel and, of course, I'm joined today by Sam. Sam, how are you doing? Doing well, mate. Doing well. How's it going? Yeah, it's going well. It's going well. It's been a, a nice day uh, down here in London. Uh, all good. All good. And, uh, yeah, tonight we are joined... Uh, we're really glad to say we're joined by uh, Thomas Westbrook, who you may know from his channel, uh, Holy Kool-Aid. Thomas, how are you doing? Fantastic. Thank you guys for having me on. Brilliant. Well, Thomas, we were just, I guess, just to get us started, it'd be really good to understand from you, sort of, what was your uh, faith tradition like growing up? What was it like for the young Thomas Westbrook and what was sort of your relationship with religion? Well, I, I grew up as an evangelical Christian and I've always had a hard time placing myself in a specific denomination because, you know, my family didn't really assign labels to ourselves. We had a home church that was non-denominational. And then we also had a church that was like multi-denominational or interdenominational. but my parents did missions work. And I grew up in the mission field. I grew up very religious from the time I was, you know, a, an infant, I was dedicated to God. And from there, it just, it got more and more and more intense, if you will. I 
started a, a youth group when I was a kid because overseas there wasn't one. And so I started one for some of the other missionary kids just to kind of like, that was my social outlet. And um, I was very involved in the church. I was very involved in, you know, everything related to religion. I had, <laughs> you name it, uh, devotions in the morning, Bible studies with my family every single day. And um, all of my homeschool curriculum was very religious. It was very um, like a Becca, Bob Jones. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but they're these, they're based out of the U S these Christian schools that will create curriculum that when it comes to things like evolution, they'll just completely skip over it. And they'll talk about how, if, if there's any evidence that seems like it's evolution, it can actually be explained by like Noah's flood or something. And they, they all tie it back to the Bible. So that, that was my, my childhood. And then when I went off to college, I got involved in even more, more stuff related to, you know, ministry and, and Christianity. I, I bounced around to a couple of different churches and I was at, over the summer, I worked as a, a church camp counselor one summer, I worked at my aunt's church as a worship leader and a youth pastor. And then as I started kind of exploring this stuff further, I started having some doubts and, and looking into more the the scientific inaccuracies in the Bible. It was kind of the, the first seed of doubt for me. And I started realizing a lot of the stuff I'd, I'd been taught wasn't adding up. And I started having doubts, but then I really didn't want to give up the faith. I didn't want to give up, you know, church. I, I knew that the cost that that would have both from my family as well as from, you know, my community around me. And so I threw myself back into it and I spent um, one semester abroad doing missions work in Kazakhstan. And kind of by the time I was done with that, I was pretty much done with my faith, but it was very shortly afterwards. I, I graduated from university and um, very shortly after that, I left religion behind. But it wasn't it wasn't just this one moment, you know, one and done. It was this really gradual, long process of trying out all different things, trying out a lot of different stuff in religion, and then also like working through a lot of stuff related to, you know, how how do I figure out how the world works and and does this match up with what the Bible says? And having these doubts and wrestling with them, and it, it was an intellectual journey that led me out of of my faith. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and yeah, it sounds really familiar. Just in terms of, it's not always just that one clear thing, but just the building up or building up of that cognitive dissonance. How do you fit all these different things together? Um, and I, I'm just curious because obviously, you know, you say a lot of this happened near the end of that time out in Kazakhstan. Was it some of the experiences you had out there, or was it because in a completely different environment you could read and learn different things? Well, I think when I was there, there was a couple of things. One was I had gotten hooked on TED Talks while I was right before I left. So one of my roommates was studying engineering and he's like, oh, yeah, you got to check out this site. And he showed me some TED Talks and stuff. And I had also up until that point, I hadn't really explored laterally like I hadn't really learned laterally in a lot of other topics and so my my scientific understanding was really really low it was abysmal and I didn't even know how you know basic electricity worked it was just kind of magic there's just magic going on inside of computers and I knew it wasn't magic but it for for all intents and purposes to me it, it could have it could have very well been I just I had no idea and I wanted I love technology and there was no conflict between technology and religion so that was an area where it was like fine. It's, I felt comfortable exploring and, and learning about and, and figuring out how the world works and unpacking it. 
And so I started reading more and just diving into these topics. And my, my brain is, I'm very ADHD. And so I'll find one thing that interests me and then that'll like lead to something else that interests me and leads to something else. And so rather than just sticking to one topic, sticking to my major, sticking to whatever I'm, I'm focusing on, I would learn about 30 different fields. And in doing that, I would see a lot of overlap between different things. So I started learning about neuroscience and psychology and realizing how our brains can deceive us and fool us and areas, things that I had previously attributed to the miraculous. I was like, oh, hey, here's an actual explanation that makes sense that we can test and we can demonstrate and show it, that this isn't the miraculous. Well, what about this other thing? This could be miracles. Oh, wait, that has an explanation too. And so I found that these gaps started getting filled. And the, the as, as I got a bigger piece of the or bigger picture of the puzzle, there were still pieces that were missing. But every time that I would fill one of the pieces, it wouldn't be God. It wouldn't be religion. It, I would find other explanations that were more more plausible. So while I was there, there was there were a few videos that I watched on abiogenesis, and I started realizing that the the one area that I had always just accepted as you know you don't even question this is like where we came from it was God. It was just God created it. There's no other explanation. Nothing else makes sense. And then I started learning about like how stars can form naturally and all they need is matter, gravity, and time. And if you have the most basic matter, like just a hydrogen element, and you have a bunch of them, as all of that matter over time, gravity brings it together and that pressure causes the, the heat to build up and it explodes into a star. And then as all of those elements fuse together, it forms higher and higher, um, heavier and heavier elements. And then eventually it collapses in on itself and explodes out. And suddenly you've got all of these building blocks that we're made of. We're chemistry. All of us are chemistry. And so I started finding these natural processes that it's like the, the elements that are the most abundant in the universe are also the elements that are required for life, like hydrogen and oxygen and you know carbon. And those are what, what we're made of. And then I started learning about all of the, the different experiments that have been done to simulate the early Earth environments and how things like amino acids form naturally in multiple different ways. Things like nucleic acids and fatty acids and stuff, they all form naturally. And all the building blocks of life kind of come together on their own, given enough time in this type of an environment. So it's like, we don't know exactly how it happened, but I started to realize that like this wasn't as far-fetched as I thought it was. It wasn't just, ha ha, you think that like there's a rock and then poof, there's humans and or there's apes and then monkeys become humans. And it was the, the straw man caricature that I had kind of heard evolution, natural selection, abiogenesis, the big bang. I'd, I'd kind of heard it portrayed in this just really dumbed down way. And as I started to actually dive in, I realized that it was kind of dishonest the way it had been portrayed and it actually made a lot more sense. So that's incredible. Um, and your, your, your passion just, just oozes from you. It's fantastic. Um, so I want to take us right back. So um, back to the early days, you, you, you're essentially about to hit go live on your YouTube channel, right? You haven't done anything like this before. This is going to be an exciting adventure for you. What was the reason, um, Thomas, that you decided to hit go with Holy Kool-Aid? Like, what were you trying to begin to accomplish through producing the sort of content that you did back in the early days? Well, initially I had, I've, I've I've dabbled with film for years since, since high school, my, my earliest videos were actually stop motion Lego videos. And so I was comfortable with the medium. I had done some different film competitions. I was in a film class in college and I'd actually won a competition 
which paid for my camera. So like I bought a camera on credit and then in order to submit to a competition, won the competition, paid for the camera. And so I, I had a little bit of gear and I finally, I was out of college. I had a job. I had a little bit of extra money. So I was able to kind of, you know, buy a few things. So I wanted to get into, you know, film and YouTube, but I, I thought I was going to go more the route of technology and, and sh- talking about, you know, educating people and, you know, science and stuff like that. And what I found was that this, this issue, I just couldn't, I couldn't pull away from it. It was such an existential issue of like, these are the big questions. What, where, where do we come from? What is the purpose of life? What are we supposed to do with our lives? Like what's good and evil and how can you tell right from wrong? And, you know, are, are these religions, which one is true? And as I was wrestling with that, I knew that there would be consequences with, you know, my, my friend groups and my family and, you know, my work and coworkers and stuff. These were things that I couldn't really talk with them about. You know, for, for example, I had a coworker who I simply mentioned evolution. And at the time I was kind of more of a deist initially. I was like, okay, I believe in God and might even be the Christian God and things in the Bible might not be quite spot on, but like there's, there's probably a creator, but evolution makes sense. And that's, it was kind of a theistic evolution or deistic evolution um, mindset, but even just kind of barely mentioning that, not even in a religious setting, talking about evolution, it was just like, ha I can't believe anyone would think about, you know, uh, take that seriously. It was like her response. And so I knew that talking about this stuff was, and, and my family being ultra religious, they would obviously have a lot of pushback. And so I'm like, how do I get these ideas out there? I don't want to be just interrupted and railroaded and dogpiled on by, you know, everyone around me. But video was a medium that I could do. I could really hone in on a particular idea and explain why I think that this is the way that it is and, you know, explore my thought process and kind of document my journey out of religion. So that was initially like the first video. It was kind of like, hmm, you know, I think the, the first video that I made was it should be okay to be curious. It should be okay to explore. It's It was about like, why is it that so many religions will tell you not to look behind the curtain or they'll tell you just to believe on faith and, you know, God, God works in mysterious ways or don't doubt. These are all kind of concepts that, you know, they're, they're, depending on which, you know, apologists, some apologists will say that's not what the the message is, but I found that most churches would instill that kind of a message in their congregants, that faith was a virtue. And I, and I thought that that was nonsense. I thought that if something was true, truth withstands scrutiny, we shouldn't be afraid to look behind the curtain. We shouldn't be afraid to explore. And if God is good, then he should celebrate that. He should be excited that we're using the brain that we gave him to its its full potential and that we're actually exploring. And the more that we explore, we should find God if, if he's real. And so that was kind of the initial video was just like, hey, it's okay to ask these questions. Like, we shouldn't be afraid of this. And then I started kind of getting into more deeper stuff. And then I, I took a little bit of a tangent when, because like between my first video and when I went full time, it was almost a year and I wasn't releasing a lot of content. It was, it wasn't meant to be a career path. It was just, Hey, here's a video. And I was just like some, nobody just like, here's my thoughts. What do you think? And kind of seeing, and then I saw that there was kind of an appetite for the content, especially at the time there right around 2016, there weren't a lot of atheist content creators on YouTube. There were in like 2008. And then a lot of them kind of shifted into politics and there were just a few left. 
And I thought that these conversations were important and worth having, and there was an appetite for it. And so I decided to, right around the time Trump got elected, I was like, hey, if, if I'm going to actually try to do this full time, now's the time to do it. And so I, I did that. But at that point, I was kind of going through a bit of an angry atheist phase. And so I made some videos that were like a little bit more mocking. And that's, I don't think that that's the healthiest approach, but uh, they were funny. <laughs> there's there's that. But um, yeah, so I, I made those videos. And then um, over time, I kind of shifted back and the pendulum kind of swung back. And now I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little, little bit less, less angry, less radical. Not that I've been an angry person, but I just like, I felt frustrated. You know, you feel kind of like you've been lied to, you've been deceived. You're like, how do so many people believe this? And it's, you know, kind of maddening. <laughs> so, but then you, you, you balance out. That's fair. I can definitely relate to that. I am. Um, I, I swing between sort of um, a place of just like um, curiosity and a place of absolute frustration that I've I've lived my life in this um, weird bubble that I didn't let anything else get into. I just lived my life in this place, and I could have been exploring things like evolution years ago and actually enjoying enjoying the learning behind it and, and the sort of awe and wonder at this world. Okay, so I want to bring us to the present day. Obviously, you, you very recently kind of um, uh, hosted your first uh, sort of really big co conference. I know you put a lot of effort and work into that, and you've obviously got a, a very big YouTube channel now. Like every video is getting thousands of views. It's not just a little thing happening on the sideline. This is your sort of bread and butter. Um, for you, when you're kind of engaging with people and you're trying to um, tell them your message, you're trying to relate to them um, the sort of thought process that you go through. I know your videos are very sort of educational, so you're looking at uh, topics in depth. You're trying to do it concisely. You're telling a narrative in a way that's informing them of um, a viewpoint, which is fantastic. Like, what 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 is it you're trying to do, Thomas, when you're trying to um, either put something like a conference on or or put a YouTube on uh, a, a video on YouTube? Um, how how are you going about sort of formulating it and who are you trying to reach? What reaction are you trying to get? I mean, it, conferences and videos are two very different goals for me. So when I put together a conference, it's a conference is more for community. So it's it's more for those of us who have, especially living here in the the southern United States, where you know I, I live in the Bible Belt, and there's there's not a ton of atheists you know there there are but there's not a ton of vocal atheists there's not a ton that if you go out and just pull someone off the street at random they're probably going to be christian most likely and so it it's very easy to feel alone and if there's you know oh there's one atheist content creator in dallas and there's one you know over in houston and there's one up in oklahoma i'm trying to bring them together to show them one you're not alone and two to be able to, to share both encouragement and, you know, tips and ideas and show that, Hey, we, we can actually make a difference. And there's a big community of us and we're all, we all have a small voice, but we can all create a ripple effect that really can change the world. And so with the conferences, yes, there is an aspect of it that where we have educational talks and stuff, but a lot of it is just to create that community and to that solidarity and show people that they're not alone and, and have fun, you know, bring people who I want to meet, other content creators who I've wanted to interact with to bring them to Austin. That was initially what it was, was just, hey, let's meet some fans and get some content creators who've all been talking online all in one place. And then it just kind of grew out of that. So for, for that, it's more for 
the atheist specifically for the videos that I make, I am, I'm not just making them for atheists. Otherwise it would just be an echo chamber or a circle jerk. And I don't think that that's, it's, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference if it's like, Oh, Hey, you, yeah, you're right. Congratulations. You, but if, if instead, if I'm creating resources that videos that, that they can share with family and friends, that's not toxic and angry and yelling, you know, I, I would see videos sometimes where you would have an atheist that's just like ranting and angry at the, the camera. And that's not going to win too many people over. It's, it's, it's just insulting. It's off-putting. I want instead to explore how do we know what we know? How can we figure out and learn? And then what does the evidence actually show? What does it point to? And so if I'm able to create videos that are laser-focused, that captivate people's attention, that are well-crafted and well-put together, that have visuals where if you're a visual learner, you can follow along and not just hear what I'm saying, but see and have me show you what I'm talking about, then it's it's in one package and I can share this with Christians. I can show people who are on the fence and aren't sure, or atheists can watch it and be like, wow, that's a really good argument or idea that I've never thought of, but that's that's a good point. And next time I hear that brought up, I'm going to share this video because it's really hard on the spot sometimes to, if someone just says something in a Facebook post or if someone just blurts something out, it's sometimes difficult to think of a comeback in the moment. But then if if you're like me and you've been hearing this stuff your entire life and you have time to kind of sit and think through it and work through it and and figure out, is this a good argument? And then what is a good response? Then you can make that comeback in a, a video format that's just, hey, here you go. I really think that you know there's more to this that you might be interested in and people can share it and, and have a good resource. And I think there's a couple of things you've picked up on there in terms of, you know, obviously, and I, you know, I know it too, that angry atheist sort of phase stroke. Uh, I don't know. I still get it in waves as well. Um, so this, uh, people say certain things that could really just trigger and get under my skin. Uh, I, I'm curious, first of all, what are, do you, if you're aware of them, like what are some of the things that have helped you perhaps get past that phase and secondly is it, is it a phase we should totally get past or is there some justification sometimes to actually getting a bit angry about some of this stuff there's definitely a time and a place for righteous indignation and i think that one of my early videos was actually called why are atheists so angry and in that video i looked at a lot of different things that are done because of religion that are harmful and then how us as atheists are told that we're immoral and that we are, you know, don't have objective morality and therefore we're, you know, nowhere near like these great, wonderful Christians and we're denigrated and we're ostracized and we're demonized and we're shunned and it's infuriating. And so I think that there is a place for, you know, if it, in answer to that question, why are atheists so angry? It's like, we're angry because we give a damn. We see the harm that's being done and we want to, to fix it. We want to solve it. We're not just going to sit by while, you know, the Catholic church is, is, you know, molesting children, or we're, we're not going to, you know, sit by and, and watch as, you know, horrible uh, things are being, you know, done like faith healing and stuff where you have pastors that are, are conning their audience and then telling them to throw away their cancer medicine because they've been healed. And it's, it's oftentimes the vulnerable that are taken advantage of. It's kids who are, 
are prayed over by their parents rather than get taken to the hospital and given medicine sometimes. And so we see those types of things. We see the the hatred towards the LGBT community that's pushed oftentimes largely because of religion. And it it's, you know, it's, it's justifiably infuriating. And so I think that there's a place for anger. And at the same time, there's a place for, for realizing that the, I love the quote that says, never attribute to malice what can be attributed to ignorance. And I think it's called Hanlon's Law. And I, with most Christians that I've met, they, they come from a place of wanting to do the right thing. They come from a place of wanting to be a good person. And they have good intentions, but they've been taught that this is right, that this is the way to go, that this is what you're supposed to believe, this is what you're supposed to do. And it's a place of, of monumental ignorance. And so instead of getting mad at someone and saying that they're a horrible, awful, evil person, maybe they're just misled. Maybe they've just been misinformed. And I think realizing that, one, that literally was me a few years ago, and also that still having contact, not just being in an echo chamber, but still having friends and family that I still talk to and, and engage with and realizing that like they still have incredibly big hearts and they're generous and they're loving and they're kind people. I think that that helps to, to humanize the other person. And, you know, I, I don't want to live in a bubble of hate. I don't want to be just an angry, bitter person. I want, I, I think that that is, it's a tremendously exhausting burden. You get outrage fatigue after a while. If you're just outraged at every little thing, you have to be a little bit more selective with the the things that you're going to dedicate the most energy and anger towards. And then when you do get anger, when you do get angry, it's like, is it productive anger? Is it, I'm using this as fuel to, to do something productive that's actually going to make a difference or am I just getting worked up, getting my heart rate up and screaming into the void and not accomplishing anything? I think that there's, you know, there's times when you want to do the latter, but it doesn't really help. It doesn't, you know, I think if you can instead channel and focus that energy in a healthy way, you're going to have better results. And realizing and acknowledging that, like, the reason people get angry oftentimes is because they feel helpless. They feel like they can't do anything about it. They feel like there's, there's nothing else that they can do except for just like, just pent up rage. And there's always something that we can do. There's always some little thing that we can change. And, and sometimes all we can change is our attitude, but you know, if that's all that we can change, it's like, what's the point in getting worked up and frustrated if there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And that's, it's a little bit stoic, of a philosophy of saying, you know, it's the, the like the serenity prayer, you know, realizing the difference between the things that I can and can't change and trying to change the things that I can. But I, I think that there's some real wisdom to that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm curious just to sort of peel back a couple of layers there, because obviously, you know, you mentioned a couple of things in terms of obviously people being anti-science and being not uh, appreciating medicine and relying on faith healing and other um, sort of non-scientific means of, of medicine, um, being against LGBTQ plus uh, people. 
And I guess just to sort of test and see, see where you sit on this, because obviously you don't need to be religious to be anti-LGBTQ. And there are religious people who are LGBT affirming. Um, mm. So is it religion, truthfully, that is uh, causing this damage, that is causing this harm? Is it something else? Um, how, do, how do we understand religion if we're, if we're going to say these things? Yeah, and, and that's where... I don't think that all religions are created equal. I think that some religions are more harmful than others. And I, to, to even just to say that Christianity is like one religion or Islam is one religion, I think is monumentally ignorant. I think that Christianity, there are certain core tenets that most Christians hold in common. And when you deviate from some of those core tenets, then, you know, you might still call yourself a Christian and then other Christians will say that you're not a real Christian. For example, you know, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or something, you know, if, if you're a Protestant Christian, you'll probably say that they're not real Christians, but they will identify as Christian. Or if you're, you know, Catholic or Orthodox, whether or not you see them as real Christian depends on what denomination you are. So like there's, there's so many different, like, changes in doctrine, but also in the way that you interpret the Bible. Because, you know, I, I've spoken to tons of Christians who don't take a literal approach to the Bible, who see Genesis as metaphorical or as, you know, some kind of an analogy. You know, they, they, they'll look at it and say, oh, this is an allegory. It's, it's actually talking about something different. Or it wasn't really a six-day creation. It was actually billions of years it's just using that as a storytelling device, as a mechanism to, to communicate a point. And when you get to other passages, they'll say that, oh, the, the Old Testament wasn't actually meant for us. It was, you know, meant only for the Jews in that specific, very specific time and place. And we don't really understand it as well because the context was different and the language was different. But it was the best thing for them. And now we have a different, you know, a, a different that that has been fulfilled. And so we have a different covenant that Jesus has brought forth. And so even then, like that's a very, very different type of Christianity than if you turn to like the NIFB who are literally holding uh, conferences and, and stuff in places like Florida called, you know, the make America straight again conference where they're advocating for the death penalty for anyone who's gay, anyone who's, who's LGBT. And, so they're taking the Bible very literally. They're taking these interpretations of the Old Testament and, you know, the um, the the Jewish law, and they're saying this still applies that when it says that, you know, if a man lies with another man, as one does with a woman, he should be put to death. His blood is upon his own head. It's an abomination. Like, they read those and they're like, this is what the Bible says, so this is gospel. We have to, to act on it. And the danger for me is that I can read the Bible as an atheist and I don't think it's divinely inspired. I don't think that it's flawless. I don't think that it's inerrant. And I do think that there are pieces and nuggets and, and stuff of truth and, and of uh, wisdom that we can glean from it without accepting all the rest of the baggage. So I can go and, and open up the book of Proverbs and read something on, you know, holding holding your tongue and controlling your temper and and it's like yeah this is great advice and then i can flip forward a few passages or back a few passages and see that allegedly god's condoning genocide and telling the israelites to wipe out all the men women and children of the amalekites and i don't have to argue that that's moral and and try to justify it in any way shape or form 
Whereas if you have a position where you've been taught dogmatically that everything in scripture is perfect, that it's God breathed, that, you know, it's inspired by a perfect omnibenevolent, omniscient, omnipotent deity, and that there's no errors in it whatsoever. And we take it literally that's dangerous, especially because you have a book that's so ripe for being interpreted in so many different ways. And yet you see it as, as flawless and perfect and you have to follow it. And so it's, it's that kind of dogma that I think really, really sets people up and primes them for potential harm and for potential bigotry or hatred or, or damage that's caused because of religion. So running with the example you mentioned there of, um, of homosexuality, obviously those are kind of old Testament, um, commands essentially delivered to, um, um, Abraham, sorry, Moses, um, and basically kind of like pass out to the Israelites. Now, if we kind of, um, and I know you've done this heavily within your own videos, but we've obviously looked at, um, archeology, span we've looked at the kind of, um, historical records as far as we can. And what we've kind of come to the conclusion and, and Josh, Josh Bound does a great job of this in, in his, um, in his first of the two volumes, the second one comes out later this year, I believe, but the atheist whole, uh, the atheist habit to the old Testament, um, volume one is fantastic. Well worth read. Um, for those listening, go, go, go get a copy. It's, it's brilliant, but he does a really good job in this book of basically exploring the idea that essentially there wasn't this massive kind of like influx of people into the promised land it seemed to be that there might have been a trickle of people from 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 across the way but actually it seems to be there is there is an accumulation of different peoples and some of those people band together and begin to kind of talk about this sort of joint narrative of their history and begin to kind of create this story which shows that they are you know, God's chosen people essentially within the sort of promised land. And from that, they begin to get a purpose and a destiny and, and, and move forwards. So, so linking those two together is a really interesting thought because, you know, obviously we can look at the archaeology and the historical records and, and the various things that we have there in, in pottery and, and tablets and, 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 you know, the actual buildings that are there and the different settlements that we can see and, and exhibit. But at the same time, people are holding these texts to be literally true. And I find it really interesting because they're, these two things are in strong contrast, right? There's this clear truth where there doesn't seem to be this massive influx of individuals into the promised land, as would classically be uh, talked about in the, in, the, in the book of Joshua. But at the same time, people are taking the laws that are handed down in the book to be God's literal laws that we must abide today in the 21st century. And I kind of wonder, Thomas, in your in your views, why, why are people so unwilling to look at things like archaeology or history or, or, or these classic ways of understanding our past to begin to actually go well if this isn't true this story of this influx of people into the promised land isn't true why are we then going and taking the literal word of god as is presented in the bible to be literally true it seems to be a really weird paradox is the shifting of of what we want to take as true and what we're willing to take as true aren't the same thing so yeah what what are your thoughts on that it's a bizarre one i think that most christians who i've talked to they are willing to look at the archaeology but they're selective and they cherry pick. And it's it's a exercise in confirmation bias. If you see a particular thing that affirms the Bible and it affirms the viewpoint that you already have, then they'll take it and they're like, oh yeah, see, this is evidence for it. And they'll hold that up and they'll hold up a pile of, of evidence. And then if, and there's parts of the Bible that are backed up in the archaeological record, but if they, they find something that is, that obviously disproves the biblical narrative, they'll say, well, that can't be right. There's something that's missing. There's something that's not there. There's something that's being told that's that's dishonest or disingenuous or misinterpreting the the archaeological finding. And so they're in being selective like that, they'll say, yes, we are absolutely willing to look at the archaeology, but they're not looking at all of it and they're not looking at it objectively. 
Now, for the Christian who would hear this and say, well, you're doing the same thing as an atheist. You already have your, you know, pre, you know, your foregone conclusions, you this preconceived notion that it's not true, and you're looking for anything to back it up. I, I would push back on that. I would say, no, I, I want to know which parts of the Bible are and which parts aren't based in history. And I went into it looking at the the archaeology from a standpoint of someone who I, I really didn't know. I, I thought that, even as an atheist, I thought that most of the stories were based in, in truth historically, except for like the miracles, like the, the bits about departing the Red Sea maybe weren't true, but the exodus actually happened or something. And what I started finding was that in archaeology, there are ways that we can discover if something happened or if it didn't and actually look for what what should we expect to find if this was the case and what do we see instead. And so when they they go and they they look at sites all throughout this region, all throughout ancient Canaan, and they're you know they're digging down and they're looking during these time periods and stuff and they're they're getting a, a picture of what the culture was like, instead of seeing oh hey there's there's a lot of evidence of you know the the Israelites being here and of worship of Yahweh and of you know finding you know no pig bones and you know they're they're not eating pork and they're setting up these altars exactly as described and they're there there's a, a massive displacement of the Canaanite people and culture and all of a sudden there's a shift to the Israelite culture you should see that in this time period and instead you don't you don't see that at all you know you don't see the the type of evidence that you would expect if there was an exodus of like 2 million people out of Egypt you would expect to find some type of of written record of this in the Egyptian records and i was like well maybe there's just not a lot of evidence at all maybe nothing really lasted and I started looking into it more and I was like, actually, there's all throughout Egypt because it's a super hot, dry place. Stuff is preserved really, really well in Egypt, almost more better so than almost anywhere else, except things that are maybe like frozen in ice in Antarctica or something. But in that type of a setting, we have written records all throughout this time period. There's hundreds and hundreds of tablets of diplomatic correspondences in languages that we can read and understand between the pharaohs at the time and their various vassals throughout the land of Canaan and throughout you know the surrounding regions you know like up in uh, southern turkey and in um, mesopotamia and babylon and stuff or what what would become babylon later um or the babylonian empire later and so so you see this this information that's there and it's telling a story and you're piecing it together and you start, it's, it's kind of like when you're, you see those forensic walls and like TV shows where people will put up on the wall, they'll put a picture and then they'll tie like a string from one thing to another and have a connection and they'll tie another one. They'll find all this stuff that's pointing in a particular direction. You don't just come with one piece of evidence. You come with a big picture. You come with all these pieces to the puzzle and you're like, Oh wow. So this person was here ruling at this time. This person was here. They're interacting in this way these people worshiped these gods. They had these cities that were this big. And they, you know, when we dig down, we don't just have written records of it. We'll find, you know, evidence of it. And, you know, their, the types of uh, pottery that they had was, you know, similar to their culture, the types of uh, food that they were eating and stuff that they were wearing and the gods they were worshiping and the the altars that they had and the culture, like you start getting a, an image of who was living there what they were like, how big were these settlements, how big were the population sizes, and um, what was changing, what was shifting, who went to war with who, when were cities destroyed and stuff. And as you get this bigger picture, you have a very, 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 very different image of 
what the, the Bible tells and what we see on the ground in this region at the time. And so that's kind of what I would push back with is that it's not just that a, a Christian isn't willing to look at the evidence. It's that they're being selective and that they're not incorporating all of it. Whereas if you're, if you're being honest, you won't just, even as an atheist, I'm not going to discard the stuff that proves certain stories in the Bible. I'll, I'll look at it and say, Oh, Hey, here's something that talks about Omri and the, the Omri dynasty and, and Omri and, and Ahab and stuff like they're They're mentioned in the Bible and they were, you know, Kings of Israel. And so I'm happy to look at that and be like, yeah, okay, these were real people. This probably is actually referencing real stuff. But then I'm also going to look at it and say, but there's multiple mentions of him in by other nations talking about him as this, this great leader. And he's, he's actually a lot bigger and a lot more important. He's got this dynasty. Whereas in the Bible, he's kind of played down as like a nobody. And the Bible talks up instead, you know, the people like King David, and we don't really see a lot of evidence for this massive, huge, grand unified kingdom. There may have been a smaller one, but not of the scale mentioned in the Bible. And so like, I'm if, if you're really being honest and not just being selective, you'll say, okay, here's the, the, the big picture view that we get. These pieces of the Bible are true and it checks out and these pieces don't. We're going to go where the evidence leads rather than just going with what we want to be true. Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything we do. There are three ways you can support When Belief Dies. Firstly, would you rate When Belief Dies in Apple Podcasts and over on Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog, podcast and YouTube channel. All the links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's conversation. Yeah, I mean, I guess talking about being selective, I think it's really interesting when you look at the the way that that area has changed over time and how the sea people came in and how different things basically shifted, the different different power groups came up and things rose and fell around that place. But there seems to be this this culmination of probably large families or groups of people who come together who form this identity of Israel and weirdly they select around themselves and then obviously those outside themselves aren't part of God's people it seems to be a real, like if, if 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 this is true okay so if 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 within the promised land we have a group of people coming with the claim they are God's chosen people and um therefore those that aren't God's chosen people are no longer in the tribe it feels really interesting this sort of kind of shift in in just kind of like where 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 are they drawing this line so the samaritans are out because they've chosen to draw the line a few hundred years ago around this other family essentially and this this and these other families in the outskirts are now kind of shunned and are no longer part of it and probably written into the story as the baddies essentially uh, the, the gods those those that were sacrificing their firstborns or children to 
Baal or whoever it was, and you actually begin to look into it, and you, you realize that actually there's a good chance that the the Jewish people are also sacrificing their children to Yahweh. It's, it's a fascinating story. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, it seems that from the very beginning there has been this desire to segregate and to cut aside those that aren't fitting the narrative or aren't in at the right time and push them away. And, and, we, and we still see that today. We still see this this desire for for those who are in and those who are out. Like, for instance, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Dale C. Allison, who would call himself a Christian. He's a New Testament scholar for those listening who don't know who he is. Um, and I was recently talking to somebody on Twitter and they said, well, obviously Dale C. Allison isn't a Christian because he doesn't affirm the sort of classic or of, uh, resurrection of Jesus. And I'm like, it's really weird that you have decided that he isn't a Christian when he's happy to call himself Christian. I'm happy to say he's a Christian. It's just you and your sort of drawing the line that's saying he isn't a christian and i guess it just comes down to human nature but i really would love your yeah i'd, I'd, I'd love your take on this thomas like why do you think there is such a desire for people groups to draw lines around themselves and say you're not in but these people are in like why do we why do we want to do that oh birds of a feather flock together and i think that historically we historically people have always formed tribes and those that didn't and those that didn't find some way to, to unify a tribe that you know were disparate and isolated didn't last as long. It's it's a lot easier for a tribe to to survive and to go on and continue to reproduce and stuff. It's it's natural selection of the group in a way, and it's it's easier for you to be able to have that kind of success when you're able to form a cohesive group. And what we've you know we we see this all over the world, but when it comes to the the ancient israelites the the formation of judaism or the the formation of the old testament was not something that was a political it was a very political move and you know most scholars think that it was compiled around the time of king josiah and he's trying to kind of bring the nations together and, and show how you know they're they're God's people, and they have they're united around this this belief set and this religion and this God and this deity, and that God has always been with them. And and the times when they've fallen and the times when they've been wiped out in the past has been because they've strayed from God. And if they can all just form around this one thing, this one point of unity, then God's going to be behind them, and He's going to battle with them, and He's going to have their backs. And ultimately, it didn't work. Ultimately, the you know. Israelites wound up just being swept up in another empire, but that long term though, the ideas stuck and the book stuck around and the religion stuck around. And so even once, you know, the, the Israelites were swept off into captivity and then, you know, they were overtaken and, you know, by, you know, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, they still had this core identity that kept them together and kept them you know, believing that there was going to be something better, something that's, you know, if, as long as we stick together, we can make it. And there's something powerful in that. There's something beautiful in that, that, that kind of finding a, a point of commonality that you can bring people together with. The, the, the downside you, you mentioned, you alluded to was that with tribalism, whenever you have an in-group, there's inherently lines that are drawn and there's out-groups and there's people that are, are kicked out of the group. And so, the question is, can we as humanists expand that circle out in a way that we can still have some some level of, of of unity and something to bring all of us together that we can, you know, 
form positive groups and associations around and that we can have joint tasks and come together and actually accomplish and do great things as the human race without making it so diluted that everyone's just like, well, I don't even know where I fit in. I don't even know where I belong. I'm, I'm so different from everyone else. Like, what's my place in this? Like, you want to, to find a way to bring people together, but at the same time, not just like have such stark dividing lines that, that leave so many in the dark and, and that pit groups against each other. Cause you have all these tribal groups that are fighting and hostile because they disagree on something that they see as the, the most important thing. And that's, that's tricky. And if anyone ever figures it out, maybe we'll have world peace, but I'm not, I'm not uh, offering any specific solutions. I'm not sure that I have any. Yeah, I mean, we've me and Sam have chatted about this so many times. Just the fact that religion is incredibly powerful, and as you say, there is something beautiful about these narratives that we share, bringing us together around some sort of common purpose. I guess I'm just curious to, you know, once again to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Is there a risk that atheism? could also become its own tribe, that it can also become an in-group that that pushes others into an out-group and sort yeah, of... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there there were, you know, some very militant atheists that had formed that kind of in-group, out-group in the Soviet Union and that, you know, led to, you know, persecution of people who weren't in that in-group. And it was it was horrible. It was atrocious. So there's, there's always a danger with tribalism. And I think that if if we're, we're conscious of our own, our own biases and we're conscious of our own de desires to form those kind of groups and, and we hold ourselves accountable and we kind of take a step back and we're, we're more cautious of cults and educate people on how to look out for that kind of, of mentality and that kind of tribalism and we check ourselves, then I, I think we can help to maybe inoculate ourselves against it, but it, there's always a danger. I don't think that it's limited to one religion specifically. I think that everyone has that as, as a human, we have that inherent tendency. Yeah. So, so deep in our, our human nature and our need for community, I guess, you know, just uh, as we're sort of uh, moving on, what, what, what do you see in the future of yourself, your channel uh, with, with Holy Kool-Aid? Um, is it, continuing as you were or is there sort of a new areas that you really want to delve into i'm not sure i'm I, I feel like i'm a little bit at a shifting point but i don't know what that is i i'm i'm obviously i'm i'm still planning on continuing my channel it's it's my full-time thing and it's continuing to grow but as far as what i cover on my channel i'm i'm not sure i i i think i i still want to talk about the big questions but I don't want to do just videos and, and, and ground that's already been covered by everyone else. You know, there's so many apologetic arguments that have been touched on a hundred thousand times. And there's so many different things that when you first become an atheist, you just hear left and right. And it's, it's easy to respond to. And it might, it's still important to talk about that stuff. And if there's new channels and stuff, I, I absolutely think that they should, their first few videos should be covering things like the Kalam cosmological argument or the ontological argument, or people will say like, like my early video, why are atheists so angry? It's like, it, it seems like it's just a really simple thing, but it's important to have those conversations because there's so many people out there that are still asking these questions and that are still saying like, oh, you're just an atheist because you want to live a life of sin and because, you know, you let the devil 
get a hold of your heart or something. And, and I think that we need to push back as long as people are making those claims, then the more of us there are that actually respond in a healthy way with an actual reasonable answer and objection, that's needed. But for me, I, I kind of get bored and I, I like to dig deeper and, and explore things that I haven't before. The problem is that I never know what that is until I've discovered it. And then when I discover it, then I, I try to make a video on it. There's a lot of topics that I've I've kind of hinted that I'm going to make videos on and I haven't gotten around to, and I have a big backlog of, of content to make and get through. But once I get through some of that stuff, then I don't know, I, I, I would still like to do the conference. I would still like to, to grow that and, and help the community come together, but I don't, I'm not as, I'm not as familiar with a lot of the, the smaller channels that are coming up because there's so many of them. There's when, when I first got started, it was, there's a handful and I knew all of them. Now I'm like, I, I'll see like 10 new channels a week that I've never heard of. And I'm like, wow, this is, this whole community is exploding outwards. And I, I don't know if that means that it's going to become so saturated that I'm going to be replaced. And if that's the case, then in a way, fantastic. I've done my job. I've got more people talking about it and the society as a whole is shifting and, and having these conversations and that's good. But if that happens, I don't know, maybe I'll, I'll shift to, maybe I'll go back to university. Maybe I'll dive deeper into philosophy. Maybe I'll get into science. Who knows? Yeah, there's uh, probably a good 10,000 too many videos on the Kalan cosmological argument at the moment. <laughs> it's flavor of the month, it seems. <laughs> I've never actually done one, I don't think. Good, good. <laughs> but I could, and I, I think I could do it in a way that may, might be somewhat original, but it's, I don't know, maybe. So kind of on 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 that theme, I guess. So um, I'm I, I do a few videos with Bart Ehrman every now and then for his sort of um kind of like up and coming like webinars or whatever it is. I know you've done um, one or two yourself, um, Thomas. And I think what, what I found really good about your sort of um capture and and expression of of these sorts of scholars is the fact that you put them you, yourself and them into armchairs sitting back relaxing. There seems to be this sort of real um real casual but really honest um way that you express ideas through the depiction that you have of of individuals in the sort of cartoon narratives that you create and i'm, I'm aware that you kind of you, you, that you have a producer now i think i saw a, a a video with with you and him going to um some sort of crazy um, like airbnb-esque place where some sort of crazy christian person was putting post-it notes all over the place but anyway that that was that was a great video as well but um i mean it must take a lot of work to to get the tone right for a cartoon video i can only imagine it, it taking a long time to plan out and actually execute and i wonder could you just help myself and and the audience understand the sort of work that goes behind um, showing someone like Bartoma, for instance, in that sort of light, but doing it well. I can't imagine being able to do that. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think too much about it. I kind of think, okay, what type of conversation am I wanting to have? What kind of discussion am I wanting to have? And I don't want it to look too lectury. There was one that I did that I, I think I actually kind of, eh, it was, so I, I did an interview with James Randi back when he was still alive. And I, interviewed him at an American Atheist conference, but it was literally me and him outside just sitting having a chat. And then when I when I did the animation, 
I wanted it to kind of seem a little bit more grand and stuff. And I think it, part of that was because my channel was a lot smaller and I wanted it to be like, here's James Randy. You guys should be watching. If you don't know who he is, he's up on this animated stage. And so I put him and me like on this stage with like people watching and it just, it, it looked a little too formal. And I think that that wasn't the right way to, to depict a kind of a more intimate conversation that was just friendly. And when I have conversations with people who are like, you know, PhDs and archaeologists or, you know, uh, biblical studies um, professors, I think that when it, the way that I'm having the conversation, it's a very back and forth. It's not just like, hey, here's an interview question. You're just standing talking at the camera. And it's also not a just, you know, me shoving a mic back and forth in your face like a news reporter. And so I, I just want it to be more of a casual sit down. Hey, I'm going to ask you questions, but I'm going to push back if I if I don't understand something and I want you to elaborate, you know, I'm, I'm going to butt in and, and have you expound on it, but I also want to sit back and listen and not just be hostile and like confrontational the whole time. I love it. I think, so for me, having the ability to leave Christianity and find awe and wonder in this world has been an absolutely massive, um, blessings, probably not the right word, but, um, an amazing experience, let's say. And I think sort of the areas that I'm really interested in, for instance, are kind of consciousness and um, and the big questions of life that you can't quite wrap your hands around almost. And I kind of wonder for you, Thomas, obviously you've been in this space for a while now. What are the areas that really excite you? I know that your channel's tackled a, a variety of things um, and done it really, really well. But is, is there anything that still kind of sparks your interest? Are there any sort of, um, I mean, I'm sure there's many of them, but what, what sort of main things that grab your attention that you could run with for, you know, the next 10, 15 years? Discovering and comprehending the unknown. And that could be discovering something that nobody knows and figuring out how something works, taking a new idea that no one has, has ran with. Or it could be discovering something that is unknown to me and that physicists might be intimately familiar with, but I just haven't been able to wrap my small noodle around it. You know, like I haven't been able to get this brain to unpack it in a way that makes sense to me, or I've, I've never heard a particular argument or a particular thought. That's always kind of what drives me is this, this insatiable thirst for knowledge and understanding and more and, and figuring it out and unpacking it and stuff. And when I have those aha moments, that's what I like to share on my channel. And, and sometimes the, the times in my life that I've felt kind of burned out have been times that my brain is understimulated and that I'm not encountering new ideas. But as soon as I start, you know, dabbling more and getting more into this stuff and, and really brushing up against some of the, the greatest minds and oftentimes, you know, it doesn't have to be in person. It doesn't have to be friends. Like anyone can do it through podcasts like yours, through, you know, audiobooks, YouTube videos. When you, you start to really change your, your digital diet of consumption and, and you start consuming content and material that's, that's new and interesting and, and educational, then you start getting those ideas. And when you're, completely epistemically curious and you want to know how all this stuff works and how, how do we know if it works? How do we know what we know? And you're taking all of it together in one area and another area and another area and another area. I'm probably never going to be as good at math as like Ed Witten. I'm never going to be as good at physics as Stephen Hawking. I'm never going to be this, you know, number one incredible Nobel prize winning scientist, but I might hear an idea in one field. 
and really start to understand it and hear an idea in another field and really start to understand it and hear an idea in another field. And I might be the first person to take those ideas and synthesize them together or to, to take it and realize that, whoa, there's some really deep philosophical concept here that deserves to be unpacked and that, that we can all start to, to think about. And I might not even have the answer or the solution. It might be an idea that is wrong, but no one has quite thought about. And I've, I've got people to start asking those questions and looking, you know, and, and lifting the rocks up to look underneath them and sparking that curiosity in others. And if, if I can do that in a way that helps people to think more and helps people to grow and be more curious and actually figure out more about this crazy wild rock flying through space that we live on, then I think I've done my job. Yeah, it's really funny. We were chatting to Derek from uh, Myth Vision, and he said something very similar, like the being a, a fox in comparison to so many researchers who are like badgers, who are just mm -hmm. digging down into one very specific thing really, really precisely. And these are shallow the holes everywhere. <laughs> yeah, just just running between all the badgers, seeing, whoa, what you've got there, what you got there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's and, and this is, I think, the most wonderful thing, uh, you know, how many people look at leaving faith, leaving religion as something which is scary. And obviously there are so many different ramifications in terms of the personal aspects, the upheaval of trying to understand that how you've constructed the world in your mind needs to be taken apart and reevaluated. But actually the wonder wonderful like world of you know abiogenesis as you talked about evolution how do stars come together and explode to create all these things that matter it's such a exciting breadth of stuff to explore and really dig into well and once you once you leave behind your faith or at least even if you're still religious but you leave behind the toxic notion that you have to believe everything dogmatically and that there's certain questions that you can't ask, that step frees you up to be able to explore so much about the world, to be able to learn things and ask things that before you thought you couldn't, before those questions were off limits and you weren't allowed to ask them or you were afraid to ask them. And all of a sudden that realm of possibilities opens up to you and the types of questions you can explore and learn about, it's just so mind-bogglingly huge. And it's, oh, wow, the world is so much bigger and there's so much more that I can dive into. And I, I brought this up to my mom at one point where I said, you know, there's just so much more out there to the world, so much bigger and more beautiful than my, my Christian view, my narrow Christian view ever allowed me to explore. And she's like, no, it's not like that at all. It's, the world is so incredible that God has like, you know, allowed all this massive, wonderful things that we can explore. And I, I think she she didn't realize, she didn't know what she was talking about because she'd only ever been on one side of the curtain. And it's like, once that curtain falls and you realize that, oh my God, there's so much that I never even knew I could explore. I never even knew I could ask or I was too afraid to. And now it's just, everything is at my fingertips and it's, it's, it's humbling. It's huge. It's incredible. And it's awe-inspiring. And that is the, the, the curiosity and the, 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 the childlike 
drive to just like learn and explore and taste with without fearing that those doubts and those questions and those thoughts and those those, those questions are going to somehow damn you or get you in trouble or that those are the the forbidden questions to ask it's like no now all of a sudden your curiosity is is unconstrained and you can can learn and and you know to quote scripture taste and see that the world is good <laughs> a little change on it but you know realize that there's there's so much out there that's it's worth exploring I like that. I like that a lot. So I've got two listener questions and then I'll pass back to Daniel for closing thoughts. But um, essentially the first one is kind of, um, I guess uh, somebody wants to know from, from Patreon essentially um, when your last, oh shit moment was, which is I guess around this sort of idea of um, when you read a book. So for me, um, a recent book that I read, um, let's think about this would be sort of um, Dale C. Allison's book on the resurrection. There was lots of things in this book which made me go, oh shit, I'd never thought of it like that before. Um, and they're kind of asking kind of like when for you in 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 the last year did you have that moment and, and what was it was it a netflix special was it a book like was it a film what was the last moment for you thomas when you just went oh that has completely changed how i viewed a certain subject what if that subject is so that moment for me was literally yesterday and the the aha like the the moment where i was like oh my god I, this I'm, I'm such an idiot and all of a sudden there's something that like clicked for me and made sense and it was i was i was watching a, a lecture by sean carroll and he was talking about the different interpretations of quantum mechanics and for me i had quantum mechanics is one of those things where it's the, the, the quote famous quote about quantum mechanics is if you think you understand quantum mechanics you don't understand quantum mechanics and i had always heard these various explanations of it and I I heard a ton of different explanations, and they all seemed to kind of not make sense or not make sense with each other. And it was just like this, ah, I don't get it. And and I still don't get it. But there was an aha moment where all of a sudden I realized that the reason that it seemed as blurry and as, as foggy and, and was so hard to wrap my head around was that, at least one reason why, was that there's multiple interpretations of it. And when I saw them laid out that you have the, the the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics and you've got the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics and you've got, you know, the relational quantum mechanics, there's, there's a ton of different ways of explaining why do we see what we see and what are, what's probably going on and, and how do we make sense of this? And they're kind of in conflict with each other, these interpretations. Like, they can't all be right. But I had heard all of them. And I thought that they were all just, this is how quantum mechanics works. And when all of a sudden I realized that this is something that is not this universal consensus among physicists, but that they're all, that that some take one interpretation and some take another. And they, they all agree that the data is showing what it's showing, that the experiments are showing what they're showing. But as far as how do we actually interpret this, where do we go with this? I realized that they're like I'd been viewing it wrong that I thought it was all just kind of one way of describing that everyone agreed on. And then I was like, Oh wow, there's all these different interpretations. And, and that, that kind of was a, an aha moment for me. Now, is that useful? 
is that something well for me is that useful is, is that something that i'm gonna be able to implement into a video i i probably not but it was an aha moment that i had just like yesterday and it was you know it happens all the time but that was one in particular now, don't get me wrong. I still don't understand quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. I'm, I'm reading a book on consciousness at the moment. And um, yeah, he's briefly touching quantum mechanics within uh, dualism. And uh, it's blowing my brain. I'm just like, I just don't, I don't understand. So there we go. Um, anyway, the sort of second and final question from from Patreon um, is around this idea of consciousness, I guess, which is um, many of our listeners or viewers or whoever um, have a difficulty understanding how they could be an entity in this world who can look back upon the stars and upon the cosmos and upon our own stories and our own interactions and the fact that we're watching this online and we're able to get meaning from this it's just a crazy concept right and i guess this listener really wants to understand from you thomas like how you begin to um i guess ground and live out from this position of meaning and consciousness and being because for them it seems to point to this idea of a creator although they don't believe in a creator and how you can almost bring those two things beside each other well that's a very big question i can try and rephrase it if you want me to but essentially it's getting around this idea of how can it be this complicated and this awe-inspiring without there being something behind the curtain as you've alluded to before yeah i mean it's I think it's 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 a difficult question that as far as how is the universe this complicated? How is the universe this magnificent and awe-inspiring? And while I think awe is is somewhat subjective, it's to to most of us we would agree that that the universe is awe-inspiring. And I think that awe is is kind of based in in a way and it, it evolutionarily from fear. You see something you know like a lion and you're like, oh, that's like it's it's huge and it's it's awesome and it's it's incredible but i'm like almost afraid of this thing you see the the universe and there's this it's just so huge and i feel so small and i i'm in awe of it it's incredible and it's it drives these existential questions of like what is my place in this am i am i even like significant is this it's it's difficult to to, to grasp these thoughts and to to roll with it but i I can't help but feeling like put it, pushing it off on, okay, so it's incredible. So there has to be something that's even more incredible. That's, that's even bigger that created it all to me. That's, it's a leap in logic. And I'm like, I, I don't know the answer of how everything came into being. I know a lot of the puzzle pieces. I know different possible explanations that people have put forth as far as whether or not we know as a matter of fact 100% the how I don't know if we'll ever get there that might be a pipe dream I think we continue exploring because it's fun and it's interesting and it's captivating and I, I think that these are important questions to ask I don't know if we'll ever know the how once you start then shifting though from the how to the why like why is there something rather than nothing why is it all here and you're, you don't mean why in the sense of how you know some people they say why and they mean how and it's it's they're like well why did this happen well because you know your parents you know they reproduced and they had you that's why you're here it's like no no, no that's how you're here there, that's that, there wasn't like this i mean i guess in their mind they consciously wanted to have a, a child so that's not the greatest explanation but if i say like you know why why do i have a mug on this desk it's like well because i put it on that desk well why did you put it on that desk well because it was a place to set it well 
okay, but but why the deaths? Why? And you can you can start asking all these questions, and it's at some point it becomes nonsensical. But if you if you start digging deeper for a, there has to be some type of conscious reason behind it. Either the universe wanted it to be this way, and the universe is conscious, or God wanted it to be this way, and God is conscious. It, that's that's a complication. It's an extraction out of I don't understand this, and so I'm just gonna outsource it to a higher entity, a higher mind, and that just makes me sleep better at night, and it's it's easy. Well, the difficult questions in life that are worth asking, they're worth asking because they're not easy, because they're difficult. And as soon as we do that, I think it's kind of a cop out. It's like you're you're literally just shifting. The, the question further, well, why is why is there a God? Where did this God come from? He's so magnificent. He's eternally perfect and, and omnibenevolent and omniscient and omnipotent. All right, well, if, if he's even greater than the universe, then like there has to be some reason why he's here. There has to be some idea and grand design behind him. You, you're, you can do the same thing. And and I know it's kind of a cheap shot for, for atheists to just be like, oh yeah, well, you know, if, if God created the universe, who created God? It's it's the, this pushing back, but it's it's an important question that, that has to be asked. Like if, if you simply say that you have to do that with the universe, but not God, you, it's special pleading. It's it's you're you're saying, all right, okay, with you know, I, I already assume that a God exists, and I'm I'm gonna say that you have to ask this with the universe, but not with God. And as far as as finding purpose in the universe. Because purpose is subjective, I think that the beautiful thing about it is that like we're free to to discover and 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 make the purpose that is right for us. So the things that I find deep meaning in and that I find value and purpose in are not going to be the same things that you find purpose with or that 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 my dog finds meaning in. And that's okay. That's okay. It doesn't have to be universal. In a way, it would be boring if it was. But if there's something that you find great great value in, great joy in exploring or discovering or learning or doing or people that you want to, to be around and, and people who you want to, to, you know, add some kind of value to their lives. And, 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 you know, that's your choice. That's your, you have that freedom. And I, I would really caution people to not give that up. Don't give up your autonomy in finding your own purpose don't just outsource that ability to a God or to a church or to a church leader or a priest. It's, it's sad when people do that because they, they're giving up one of the most beautiful freedoms that we have as people. And that's to, to, to make our purpose, to find our purpose, to explore our purpose. And instead you're saying, well, without a God, what would my purpose be? I, you know, without a, you know, having religion in my life, life is so meaningless. It's like, no, 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 no. They don't have to give you the meaning. They don't have to come up with it. In a way, whatever they come up with is not going to be the best tailor-suited thing for you. You have the power, the autonomy to find the things that give your life purpose and value and meaning. And so I would, I would encourage everyone to, to, you know, never, never give up, you know, the greatest gift that we have as humans. Yeah, that's uh Beautifully put, Thomas. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, just really want to thank you for coming on the show and speaking so passionately about uh, you, your work, and, and some of these areas. It's been a really exciting conversation, and I massively appreciate it. 
Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Thanks, Thomas. There'll be links to everything that you've done um, in the description. Um, so yeah, the listener look down there and, uh, and yeah, you'll, you'll see links to Thomas and his work. Um, buddy, thank you so much. It's been yeah a dream. Thank you guys. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, please head on over to YouTube. And to follow us on social media or to see where else we are online, hit the link in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this dream a reality. And I'll catch you here at the same time next week. Enjoy the journey.